The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. We have been working our way through 1 Thessalonians, and last week in our study we looked at the first seven verses of chapter 2, and we saw Paul was defending himself against opponents who were trying to discredit him, because they were trying to discredit his gospel, and they were attacking him, and so he was defending himself. Now, we went through these verses exegetically last week. Uh, For our time this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus on Paul's words in verse 4. I wanted to do this last week, but we had no time at all to add this. So, Uh, But verse 4 says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So Paul's saying, you know, God tested us, he approved us, he gave us the gospel, so we speak. They have the gospel, they speak the gospel. And then Paul says this, not to please men. He wasn't a man pleaser at all, he wasn't in that, he didn't care about that. But to please God who tests our hearts. That's what was Paul's interest. He not only spoke to please God, all he did as a person, was to please God. Paul said that pleasing God was his aim. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, he says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. And pleasing God was not just a personal, personal passion for Paul. He admonished all believers to live in a way that was pleasing to God. In Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. <clears throat> Paul lived his life in imitation of Yahweh, who lived to please the Father. Yahweh lived to please the Father, or Yeshua lived to please the Father, so so did Paul. In John eight thirty nine, Yeshua says, He who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, For I always do those things that please Him. How would you like to be able to say that? How strong is your desire to please God? And I think you could help answer that by saying, what what are you willing to sacrifice? What pain are you willing to endure that you would live in a way that is pleasing to God? The Lord Yeshua lived His whole life with the aim of pleasing the Father. And as Christians, we're called to imitate Christ. We're called to live our lives in such a way as to please God. Ephesians 5, 1, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. The be here is a present imperative and has the idea to become. This is something that happens in our lives the more we walk with the Lord. We're becoming imitators. We are to develop continuously into imitators of God. The Greek word here for imitator, mimites, is a word that we get our English word mimic from. It's the idea of to copy something. And what this really denotes is an actor who spends his time and energy in studying a character with the view of reproducing it. So we are looking at the Word of God. We're studying the Word of God. We're seeing God. Why? For the purpose of reproducing that in our lives. 
The word mimetes is used six times in the New Testament, always in conjunction with to become, and always of imitating the Lord or someone who's following the Lord. We are to display Him in all we do and in all we say. Now, as a preterist, I often get the question, now what? (laughs) And what they mean by that, if the Lord returned in A.D. 70... Now what? What are we supposed to do? I guess the idea of waiting on a rapture or the second coming is what your whole life purpose is for, you know, and and if that's gone or has already happened, then you don't know what to live for. Well, listen, this is your answer right here. We are to be imitators of God. That's what we're here for. The constant call of the Christian is to be like Yahweh. It's Yahweh's purpose that each of us reflect the image of our Father. Paul's reason for living was to be like Yeshua. And this should be our reason for living. So how are you doing at this? If we cut in front of you in traffic, will we see a reflection of Yahweh? Or might we see something ugly? <laughs> Is your life structured in such a way as to please God by the things that you do? Is pleasing God important to you? Or are you just trying to get through life as comfortable as possible? I believe the Bible tells us the things that God wants from us. It tells us in the Scripture how to please God. And so for our time this morning, I want to look at what the Bible says about how are we to please God. Paul says, I always do those things that are pleasing the Father. I want to please God. I don't care about men. I want to please God. How do we do that? But before we look at those, and we're going to look at five different things on how to please God, I want to point out the prerequisite for doing what pleases God. Because when I talk about pleasing God, I'm not talking about trying to earn our way to heaven. The Bible tells us that we can only get to heaven by the grace of God. All right, We have to be clear on that. Romans 3.24 says, And are justified by His grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua. So we are justified. The word justified here means to declare righteous. That's what God did for you when you trusted Him. You got that? He declared. He looked at you and said, John, you're righteous. John goes, "Uh, you sure you're talking to me, Lord? (laughs) Yes, you're righteous. This is a positional declaration. This is who you are in Christ. I know sometimes we're disappointing ourselves a lot because we're like, I don't see what God sees. This is a legal act on the part of God. As a judge, he said, you're righteous. And it says it happens by His grace as a gift. Now, if you know the word grace and what it means, you get what's going on here, right? Grace is haris. It means free Unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. But the word gift here is from the word dorea, and it means for nothing. It means gratuitously. It means gift-wise or without a cause. The cause of justification is in God. It's not in us. And so when he says we're justified by His grace as a gift, he's redoubling it to show that the act of justification is all of God, 
Nothing in this act of justification belongs to us or proceeds from us. Are we straight there? <laughs> we need to be, okay? Look at Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. All right, let's drop down to 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, again, through faith, and this not of your own doing. You, I mean, how, he's going over this in just every way that you could. You, you People getting this? It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that nobody can boast. So verse 5 says that grace is the cause of our salvation. Whereas verse 8 says that grace and nothing else but grace is the cause of our salvation. The only way anybody gets to heaven is by the grace of God. And yet, the majority of people today who think they're going to heaven think they're going there because of something they do. Just ask them. Men think they can earn their way into heaven. That's a high view of themselves when you think, I'm good enough that God's going to accept me. That's a really high view view of yourself that's wrong so when i talk about pleasing god this morning that's what we're going to focus on we need to make a distinction between our position and our practice what is our position justified righteous that's our legal position before god god declared it our practice That's different sometimes, okay? We don't look like who we should. We don't act like who we should at times. And so I want to talk about these things that in our practice, we can please God. We stand righteous. That's the Listen, the good news of the Bible is that our debts, our sin debt, is paid in full by Yeshua. And not only has the Christian's debt been paid in full, catch this, there is no possibility of going into debt again. Because Yeshua paid the debt of all our sins, past, present, and future. That's grace. Totally, completely forgiven. Colossians 2.13 And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's incredible, believers. Past, present, we're free. We're we're forgiven. We're righteous. I hope that you realize that salvation is totally of grace. And if you're here or you're watching and you're trusting to any degree in your own morality, in your own religious attainments, or if you believe God will somehow recognize any of your good deeds as merit towards your salvation, you need to seriously consider if you truly are a Christian. Because you can't add anything to this. This is not about you. Believers, I understand we often fail to live as we should. We often sin and we fall short of His glory. There are many times when we feel so far from God. But believer, hang on to the truth that God has made us righteous. He has joined us in union with His Son. And as Ephesians says, He has made us acceptable in the Beloved. We're in Christ. We share all Christ is and has. We will never suffer the wrath of God. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. 
We'll never face punishment because Yeshua has borne it for us. So when we talk about pleasing God, I'm talking about how Christians are to live their lives. <laughs> Anytime I talk about practice, I have to go back and deal with position because people say, oh, that's legalistic. You got to do this, do this. No, it's got nothing to do with legalism. We're talking about pleasing God. Okay? We're to live in such a way that we please Him. Now, sometimes people feel that they're not doing what God wants them to do in their lives. They just kind of feel bad. Sometimes people do weird things because they think that's what God wants them to do. Okay? But we don't have to guess because the Bible's really clear on what God wants and what pleases Him. Pleasing God is not something that can be done once for all. And Okay, I got that out of the way. Let's move on with life. No. It's not like mowing the lawn. You get it done, you move on. No, it's coming back again. It's going to grow. Or every day you're in this process of learning and growing and attempting to please God by the things you do. All right, that being said, when we ask ourselves, how do I live so as to please God? I want to share with you five things this morning that the Bible says are pleasing to God. So what do you think would be number one on this list? What? Love. Faith. Faith. Are you, do you, does God, is God pleased by our faith? Very specifically. Hebrews 10.38 says, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Because he takes pleasure in faith. He doesn't take pleasure when we're not in faith. Look at Hebrews 11.5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Alright, so verse 5 here is telling us that Enoch pleased God. Now the next verse we all know, but watch, it's got to be connected to this verse. He was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. So Enoch had faith, so he was pleasing to God. If you don't have faith, it's impossible to please him. You want to please God, it starts with faith. There is no way we can live a life that is pleasing to God without trusting Him. He wants our trust. And apart from faith, we can't please Him. So apart from faith, it doesn't much matter what we do. If we're not trusting in God, we're not going to make any progress. A very basic and simple fact of life is all of our valuable relationships are built on trust. you agree with that? When a husband and wife stop trusting each other, they may continue to be married, but they're no longer going to have a happy marriage. When two friends stop trusting each other, they may continue to see each other, but they no longer have a true friendship. Now, if that's true in our human relationships, how much more in our relationship to God? And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Here the writer of Hebrews lays down an axiomatic truth. And he uses the aorist tense in the infinitive to please. The statement is universal in its application and it's timeless. The idea is this. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him at all. You can't if you're not trusting Him. Because the Christian life starts with an act of faith. We believe that Christ will save us if we trust Him and Him alone for our redemption. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him 
should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a promise. When I believe Christ, I'm given everlasting life. When I come to the living God as a guilty sinner, deserving wrath, trusting in Yeshua and Him alone for my redemption, I'm engaged in an act of faith. I've never seen God. I've never seen this place called heaven. I've never seen Yeshua. But by faith, those things which I cannot see become realities for me. And by trusting God for my eternal salvation, that's the beginning. It's the start of a journey that can only be traveled successfully by faith. All of the Christian life is about faith. It's about trusting God. Now let me just specify something here. When we talk about faith, I've given you a definition of faith many, many times. Faith is understanding and assent to a proposition. Okay? Understanding. In other words, you understand the proposition. Assent, you, yeah. Okay, I believe that. So people have this confusion about faith in God, like, oh, I trust God for this. Where, why did God, why do you think you can trust Him for that? Where did He say anything about doing that for you? You know? You have to have a promise. God gives you promises. Trusting what He said, that's faith. Or trusting in God's character, you know who His character is. This is consistent with God's character. I can trust Him. See, thousands of believers have trusted God for their salvation. But they're not living by faith. Trusting God in each and every day of their lives. We should be people who live by faith. Every day and in every way we should be trusting God in our daily lives. But are we? I mean, do we really trust God? I mean, when things start falling apart and you're really hurting and it seems like your life's coming apart at the seams... Do you trust Him? Job says, though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. When we fail to trust God, we doubt His sovereignty, and we question His goodness. And I believe that God views our distrust as seriously as He views our disobedience. When the children of Israel were hungry, they spoke against God. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Does that just make you, you know the story, you know the background, you read something like that and you're like, what is wrong with these people? They watched the plagues in Egypt. They walked across the dry land of the sea when the Red Sea closed up and killed all their enemies. They saw all this and they say, hey, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Well, yeah, you idiots. Think about it. Now watch. He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. During a desert, Moses strikes a rock and water comes out enough to quench the thirst of a couple million people. Well, he can do that in the desert. But watch this. Can he also give us bread and provide meat for his people? Yeah, stupid. Think about it. Therefore, when Yahweh heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger arose against Israel. Why is he so mad at them? The next verse tells us, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. They didn't trust him. And people, in order to trust God, in order to trust anybody, you need to know them. To trust someone you don't know is foolish. Okay? I've had people say to, you, to me, do you trust me? I'm like, no. I don't even know you. Why would I trust you? 
You have to, trust has to be built. You have to understand someone's character so you can trust him. And that's why the more we come to know God, the more we can trust him. David said this, and those who know your name put their trust in you. Oh, Yahweh, you have not forsaken those who seek you. In Hebraic thought, the name means what? Character. Character. It's not like our names, which is just a random combination of sounds. That's not what it is. The name conveys the nature and essence of the person named. It represents the history, reputation of being named. In English, we often refer to a person's reputation as his good name. What do we mean? We mean, oh, we really like that name, David. That's a good name. No, it means he has character behind the name, so we call it a good name. The Hebrew concept of name is similar to that idea. Those who know your name. It doesn't mean if you know his name's Yahweh, everything's good. No. Those who know your character, they put their trust in you because they know you. They can trust you. To know God's character is to be able to trust Him. Do you know Him well enough to trust Him? Do you know Him well enough to have such confidence in Him that you believe He's with you in your adversity even though you don't see any evidence of His presence and power? To know God's name is to know Him in an intimate, personal way. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And believers, the Scripture tells us that when we trust Him, it pleases Yahweh. Faith. And again, this comes from knowing God, from spending time in Him. How to live is to please Yahweh. Well, one is to have faith. You, gotta, you have to trust Him to walk with Him. Secondly, worship. Now, when we talk about worship... We might primarily think of a worship service like what's going on here. You know, you get together, you read some Bible passages, you sing some songs, you pray, you listen to somebody preach. But true worship comes from the heart. It's an expression of adoration. And worship can take place here, but just because we're here doesn't necessarily mean we're worshiping. See, because if it's not coming out of a heart, then it just becomes a ritual. Without the corresponding heart attitude, it doesn't satisfy God. Worship is honor and adoration directed to God. The, the idea of worth-ship, you're giving worth, that's what worship is, you're giving worth to God. You're saying you are worthy, Lord. The New Testament uses several words for worship. Two of them are particularly noteworthy. Proskuneo, which means to kiss towards or bow down. It doesn't mean literally, but that's the idea. You're, you're adoring God. You're bowing before Him. It signifies humble adoration. Another word for worship is lotruo, which means rendering honor or paying homage. And both terms carries the idea of giving because worship is giving to God. It's giving Him praise. It's giving Him glory. It's giving Him adoration. And it begins with us giving ourselves to Him and then our attitudes and our possessions. Worship is a heart attitude. Romans 1.9 says, For God is my witness whom I serve, and that's the word latruo, worship, with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you. So worship is often connected with sharing the gospel with an unbeliever. 
Why? Because we think so highly of God and what He has done that we are amazed at what He's done. And we want to tell other people about that. Romans 15, 16. To be a minister of Christ Yeshua to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The word minister here is letorgas. Same idea of serve, letruo. All right, it means to be a worshiper. Giving is an expression of worship. Now, when we talk about that, I mean, your life can be an expression of worship and giving of all you have, but we're talking financially, the Bible teaches that giving is an expression of worship. That may be hard to understand in today's age in the church where your arms are twisted until they break to give money to the church for every other thing, but the Bible teaches it is worship. Look at Philippians 4.18. A very important text in understanding this. Paul is writing to the, the book of Philippians, basically a thank you letter. All right. Paul's writing the Philippians and he's thanking him. He says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So he's saying, you sent me a gift to help me out. I appreciate that. Now, what's important here are the words he uses, because the word fragrant is from the Greek word euodia. The word offering is from the word osme, and the word sacrifice is from the Greek word thusia. And what's really important and interesting about these words is that all three of them are used in Ephesians 5.2 of Christ offering himself to God as a sacrifice. Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us an osme, euodia, thusia to God. Same exact words. And we understand that Christ offering Himself to God was a sacrifice. And that's what He's saying about their financial gift. Using these same terms. Paul viewed their gift as an offering to God. A sacrifice. Now, not all people witness, and not all people study or give this for the same reason. Some of it do, some do it out of a legalistic duty or to try to earn God's favor. But some do it out of love and gratitude. And for that, for all that God has done for them, and that is true worship. In November of 1995, Paul Harvey told this story. How many of you know who Paul Harvey is? Anybody? Man, I remember when I got out of high school, my first job at lunchtime, I'd go sit and listen to Paul Harvey. The rest of the story, okay? He, he tells this story. He says, the Butterball Turkey Company set up a hotline to answer consumer questions about preparing holiday turkeys. They didn't have Google at the time, so you just uh, call the hotline. One woman called to inquire about cooking a turkey she had had in her freezer for 23 years. The operator told her it might be safe if the freezer had been kept below zero degrees the entire time, but the operator warned the woman that even if it was safe, the flavor had probably deteriorated, and she wouldn't recommend eating it. The caller replied, that's what we thought. We'll just give it to the church. <laughs> That's not worship, people. Giving up what we don't. Get our junk. Get rid of our junk. No, that's... Listen, true worship comes out of a desire to please God, to show gratitude to God, to show one's love for Him. 
It comes from our heart. There's a right reason behind it. And if we offer up something to God, whether it be our time, our physical effort, our prayer, our money, we do it with the right heart attitude, a heart of love and adoration and thanksgiving because He is worthy of it. That's why it's done. It becomes worship. Let's not kid ourselves. Someone can come faithfully to a worship service and never worship. We can do wonderful things for people and never worship. The essence of worship lies in the heart of the worshiper, not the deed that's done. It's when it's done to please God, when it's done out of adoration and thanksgiving for God and who He is. So we can please God by our faith, by living a life of trusting Him. We please God through adoring Him, through worshiping, through giving Him worth. Another thing that pleases God is service. I don't think that would probably surprise anybody. God wants our service. He wants, and, and let's look at the verse that started all this in 1 Thessalonians. Because Paul is saying, just as we have been approved by God and to be entrusted with the gospel, he, he approved us, Dokimadzo, he, he put the gospel in our charge, and so we're speaking. I'm doing what he's given us, I'm sharing it. And I'm not doing it to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. And he was in God's service, so he's carrying the gospel to other people. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, in the Tanakh... The priest class served on behalf of all Israel, and each family offered sacrifices to atone for their sins. But in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, we serve not out of a sense of need to atone for our sins that are already paid for, but out of a sense of gratitude and out of a sense of love. You know, I think sometimes preachers, teachers have a tendency to make it sound like what they do is more pleasing to God than what anybody else can do. And that's just nonsense. We've created a caste system in the church. We have clergy and we have laity. And I'm paid to be good and you're good for nothing, right? (laughs) That's not how it should be. That distinction is totally arbitrary, okay? Look at Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. This means that the field of what we can do for God is wide open. Whatever you do as a vocation, you can do it in a service to God. You're supposed to do it in a service to God. A surgeon at Barnes Hospital in St. Louis came in to see a patient before the operation, and he said to his patient, see these hands? They're the best in this hospital. And I'm like, wow, that sounds a little bragged. Of course, that's, he's a surgeon, so you would naturally expect that, right? But then he said this, and I want you to know that before I operate, I'll be on my knees for an hour. Now, that's awesome to me, but it seems like a contradiction because his first statement seems arrogant, and then he said, I'm going to be in prayer, which is an act of humility. So he's like countering it out. But, you know, maybe his hands are the best because he's on his knees before God, you know, and cares about, you know. I mean, if I had to operate on somebody, Lord, I'd be on my knees for weeks before I... (laughs) I can't even imagine what some of these guys do. Peter Drucker said this, Religion lives off the excess of culture. Meaning, it's something people do in their spare time. You know, hey, I got some little time. How can I, how can I serve God? That may be true for some, 
But it's not supposed to be true of Christians. Whatever we do, if done in the right attitude for the right reason, can be just as righteous and just as pleasing to God as when we come to a formal worship service. God just wants us to serve Him out of love and gratitude. So whatever, wherever your work is, wherever your school is, whatever you're, whatever you're doing, it is unto the Lord. And people notice that. People see that. It doesn't matter if your boss is watching you or not because you're working for the Lord and He sees you. So you keep working. You keep doing the best. So we got to have faith, people. We have to have a heart of worship that recognizes who God is and adores Him. We have to serve Him because that's what He's called us to. A fourth thing that the Bible teaches that pleases God is prayer. Do you understand that prayer pleases God? Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. I don't really like that translation. Um, look at the CSB says, the prayer of the upright is his delight. Being acceptable and being a delight are kind of different things to me. I don't know about you, but that's it. The prayer of the upright is a delight to God. Now, listen, we know Yahweh's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything from anybody. And since that is who God is, we're not surprised to learn from the Scripture that the way to please God is to come to Him to get and not to give. Since from the Scriptures I learned that God is the kind of God who will be pleased with the one thing I have to offer Him, my need. My need. God is delighted not by things I have to offer, but by the acknowledging of my need of Him in every area of my life. Psalm 147, 10 and 11 says, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is pleasure in the legs of man. But Yahweh takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His steadfast love. In other words, he's saying here, God delights not when we offer Him our strength, but when we hope in His. This good news is based firmly on a vision of God that is sovereign, that is self-sufficient, that is free. And if we don't have this foundational knowledge of God in place, when we ask, how can we please Him, our efforts to please Him become a self-exaltation, a legalistic striving. Prayer is His delight because prayer shows the reaches of our poverty and the riches of His grace. Prayer is that wonderful transaction where the wealth of God's glory is magnified and the wants of our soul are satisfied. Therefore, God delights in the prayers of the upright. Basically, prayer comes down to this, and I say this every time I talk about prayer. Prayer is a declaration of our dependence. You know, people wrestle with prayer. If God is sovereign, why should I pray? Because prayer is a declaration of your dependence. And every time you pray, you're saying, God, I need you. And God delights in our need. He delights to meet our needs. And when you make every detail in your life a matter of prayer, you learn to depend on Him for everything. You know, it's hard for us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because our pantries are stuffed, our refrigerators are overflowing, and we got grocery stores just down the street that have everything we need. 
And we got credit cards, so we can buy anything we want. But we have to realize that apart from God, we're not, He provides everything we need. God is pleased when we depend on Him. We have a God whose nature is such that He wants us to desire things from Him. He pleases Him when we come to Him with our needs. Lastly, obedience. Now, when you talk about obedience, right away people go, oh, legalism. Well, we already dealt with this. Okay, go back to the beginning and listen to this over again. Okay, you understand, we're not, talking to, we're not trying to be obedient so God would like us. You know, He already loves us as much as He loves Christ. We're trying to please Him by the life that we live. Once a husband and wife were discussing the possibility of taking a trip to the Holy Land. You know, let's get to the Holy Land. And the husband said, wouldn't it be fantastic to just go to the Holy Land, to stand and shout the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai? Wouldn't that be awesome? And the wife said, wouldn't it be better if we just stayed here and kept them? (laughs) That's something my wife would say. (laughs) Yeah, wouldn't it be? You know, we think of doing these, you know, remarkable things. Let's do this. Let's, great act. Well, just how about we just obey God? God is pleased when we live in obedience to his word. First Samuel 15.22. And Samuel says, Has Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And listen, then the fatter rams. To obey is better, he said. Better to obey than go through all these little sacrificial things you're trying to do for God when you're not even obeying Him. He delights in our obedience. Because disobedience is idolatry. Next verse, 1523. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, He has rejected you from being king. When God says one thing, and we stubbornly choose to go our own way, we're idolaters. We've actually esteemed the direction of our own mind over God's direction, and we become guilty of idolatry. And worst of all, the idol is ourself. See, God takes pleasure in us in our obedience, because it shows we put our treasure in Him and not in the enticements of sin. He delights in the humility of our submission that loves to make a name for God and not for man. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? This pleases the Lord. Do we understand this, believer? Do you understand that obedience pleases God And disobedience displeases him. Speaking of Israel, the scriptures say this. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. God wasn't pleased with them. Why? Because of their sin. They just wouldn't obey. Look at 1 John 3, 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We know we don't earn salvation through obedience. The Bible makes it clear that when we disobey, we're not pleasing God. God delights in our obedience because everything God commands us, catch this people, is for our good. 
And so what God is really delighting in when He delights in our obedience, He is delighting in our deep and lasting joy. Because that's what obedience brings us. Deuteronomy 6.24 And Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear Yahweh our God, for our good. Always. That He might preserve us alive as we are to this day. Why does God want us to obey? For our good. Look at Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. And now Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you? But you fear Yahweh your God, walk in all His ways to love Him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I command you this day. So He wants to walk in His ways. He wants you to keep His commandments. Why? Watch the bottom for your good. This is something we really have to reprogram our thinking. God's commands are not arbitrary. They're meant to make us well. They're meant to make us happy. Every command of Yeshua is meant for our good. It's like, you know, your parents, you tell the child, don't touch the stove, you get burnt. They're not trying to be mean. It's not really fun touching the stove, and that's they're trying to keep you from joy. They're trying to protect you, and that's God gives us commands to protect us. Some of you probably remember this. Back in July of 1976, Israeli commandos raided a hijacked plane at the airport in Entebbe, Uganda. Remember that? In less than 15 minutes, okay, All seven of the kidnappers had been killed and 103 Jewish hostages had been set free. Now, three of the hostages were killed in that. Commandos came in and shouted in Hebrew, Get down! Crawl! And most of them understood and did it immediately, but some, for whatever reason, hesitated, and they got shot by the people who were trying to free them because they just didn't do what they were told. Obedience is commanded, people, for our good. God's rules for our behavior are not things that we must do to earn salvation or rules to obey because some arbitrary decision is made by some vengeful creator. They are there to protect us, to make our lives easier. And the sooner we stop talking of God's rules and about ruining our lives and we start seeing them as things that make our lives easier and better, the better off we'll be. God said, don't do that for my good. Learning to walk or live to please Yahweh is a matter of biblical instruction. Okay, you got that? How do I know what to please? You got to get in the Word of God and you got to find it because it's neither natural nor innate. You don't automatically know what to please, how to please God. I mean, some people are so you know, confused on how to please God. Oh, they think on Wednesday I went and got ashes on my forehead, so I'm pleasing to God. Nothing in the Bible about getting ashes on your head, okay? So I don't know how that's pleasing to God. We have to learn from the Scriptures. Without the Word, there's simply no way any of us are going to be able to walk the way we should. We'll not be able to walk to please the Lord. Over and over in the Tanakh, we read that God's people are to walk in His ways, walk in His statutes, walk in His laws, walk according to His Word. So if we're not in the Word... We're not going to be reminded of what we are to do. That's why I so strongly encourage you every year, read through your Bible. Read through it again. Read through it again. Learn 
who God is. Learn what He wants from you. You want to please God, you're going to learn it as you bend in the Word of God. How many of you know what a tzitzit is? I got a few hands. Good. Very good, class. <laughs> Numbers 15.38 Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tzitzit on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tzitzit of each corner. The word tassel here is the Hebrew word tzitzit. And it comes from a noun derived from the word tzitz, which means blossom of a tree. Now, Hank, you got to follow this because this is a Hebrew thought, the Hebrew thought process. The blossom of the tree becomes what? Fruit, right? So the tzitzit is a blossom, not in appearance, but in function. Why were they to wear the tzitzit? Why did God tell the Jews, put this tassel on your robes? Why did He do that? What's the point of it? Alright, the next verse. It shall be a tzitzit for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh to do them. What? That's, oh yeah. You see that thing on your robe? That's right. I'm supposed to learn these commandments. I'm supposed to walk in them. The tzitzit was to function as a reminder that the wearer is to produce fruit. Fruit being the observance of the commandment. It was to remind them of the commandment of Yahweh so they would walk in them. Remember, you're to be walking in the commandments. Now, let's talk about Hebrew thought here for a minute because it's so... These people wrote the Bible, okay? And I think the more you know about the Hebrew culture, the more you know about the Hebrew language, the more you're going to understand what the Word of God's about, And it's going to help you in this. The word Torah, we hear that word Torah, usually translated as law, all right? But the Hebrew, to the Hebrew, it meant the journey. Torah was the journey. To a Hebrew, command was direction for the journey. And righteousness, to the Hebrew, is traveling on the path. Wickedness is going off the path. So, if we can grasp this Hebraic concept about Yahweh's Word, it's going to change our thinking, and it's going to change our walk. It has to start with your thinking. We don't like commandments. I say we. I don't like commandments. You know, you tell me I can't do something, mm, I'm going to do it, probably. Okay? I know, it's just a rebel. Okay? But I just, I want to, I don't, just don't tell me don't do this. I have to know why. I have to understand it. You tell me, you have to wear a mask. I'm not wearing a mask. you got to tell me why I need to wear a mask, and it better be some science behind this, or I'm not playing your game, okay? That's just, that's how I'm wired. I don't understand it. I don't like it sometimes, but that's how I am. I don't like commandments. But I don't think too many people do like commandments, you know? I know at a hotel put up a sign, no fishing out the window. They had so many broken windows from uh, sinkers smashing through their windows. They took the signs down. No more windows got broke. It's like, you tell me I can't do that. I'm going to go ahead and do it. All right. So we don't like commandments. But listen, I don't think any of us really mind directions. Right. We don't like someone saying, don't do this. But if someone says, oh, if you're going to get there, go this way. Oh, thank you. That's helpful. So if you want to get somewhere, you follow the directions. Now, if you're in Virginia Beach and you want to go to Florida, you got to follow directions and you're going to have to head south. 
unless you have a boat, then you can head east till you hit the water, and then you got to head south, okay, <laughs> to get to Florida. Well, the same is true with Yahweh's directions. If you want a life of fellowship with the Father, if you want a life of joy and peace, you have to follow the directions that Yahweh has given us. That's what they're for. They're directions for our health, for our benefit. To not follow the directions is to leave the path. And you leave the path, you don't arrive at the goal of joy and peace. Yahweh has laid out the directions for the path in His Word. So we need to read it. We need to study it. And then we need to follow it. Isaiah 2.3 says, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and then we will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Now what I want to point out here is the word come there is the Hebrew word halak. And halak means to walk. So he's saying, walk, get moving, let's go up to the mountain, that we may walk, same word, halak, in his ways. The Christian life is a journey that we are walking. We can only do this as we are on the path, following the directions. You get off the path, it's trouble. It's danger, okay? And I know some of us like to do stuff like that, but... (laughs) For your Christian life, you want to stay on the path, all right? In life, you can get off in some different areas, but you, in the Christian life, let's stay on the path, all right? Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You want to know how to walk the path? You spend time in the Word of God. It guides us. It gives us instructions for the journey. The church today, I believe, has left the path. Adultery is rampant in the church. Fornication, rampant. Abortion, homosexuality, lying. They're all pervasive in our day. They're pervasive among those who call themselves Christians. I'm talking about the church. It's left the path of Yahweh, and this is costing us all. It's costing us all. Because as the church, we are to be having an influence on the culture in which we live. And we're not influencing the culture. The culture is influencing us. We're being pulled down the drain by the culture in which we live. Because too many of us are afraid to stand up and fight the culture. C.S. Lewis was right when he said this. The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the best argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug, when they are narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. When Christians walk in fellowship with Yahweh and begin to express their Christianity through their lifestyle, society cannot help but be affected. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, Most competent historians are agreed in saying that what undoubtedly saved England from a revolution such as that experienced in France at the end of the 18th century was nothing but the evangelical revival. This was not because anything was done directly, 
but because masses of individuals had become Christians and were living this better life and had this higher outlook. The whole political situation was affected and the great acts of parliament which were passed in this last century were mostly due to the fact that there were such a large numbers of Christians found in the land. They were having an influence in the laws, in the culture, because they were living out their Christianity. Once we're saved believers, the direction of our lives should be to walk on the path of obedience to God in everything. And there should be no division between the secular and the sacred. When you're at work, you serve God there. When you're with your family, you serve God there. When you're at church, you serve God there. Listen, it's not about the few singers and a few musicians and me on Sunday. We're all here as ministers of grace. Paul calls them in Ephesians. What does that mean? We are all called to minister grace to one another. That's what we're here for. We're all ministers offering up grace to each other. Every Christian should be seeking to serve the Lord in every situation of life. The New Testament generally, and the apostles in particular, consistently urge those who have experienced God's gracious redemption to lead holy and godly lives. It's God's will that those who belong to Him in the new creation be characterized by a lifestyle which ultimately reflects His character and action. So what is it that pleases God? Well, we know He's pleased by faith. We have to trust Him. And the more we know Him, the more we will trust Him. Worship. God wants our worship. We acknowledge Him as worthy of our adoration, as our praise. Service. When we realize who He is and we trust Him, we want to serve Him. We want to do things that bring glory to His name. Prayer. Declaring our dependency continually. All the time. God, I need you. I need you for this. I need you you for everything. God, I can't even take another breath without you. (laughs) It's acknowledging Him in everything. And finally, obedience. God wants our obedience. And I think if we live with these principles in mind that we want our life is set up and directed to being bringing pleasure to God. That's what it's all about. That's our calling. And I believe that pleasing God is the disciples number one priority. So you have to just decide. Are you going to be a disciple? Are you going to live to please him, bring glory to him or yourself? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to take a practical look at your word. Father, we desire, I believe each and every one of us desire to please you. Sometimes our flesh, our laziness gets in the way of that. Oh, Lord, may we be driven by a desire to honor you. And I really believe, Father, that the more we come to know you and who you are, the more we know your character, the more we will be driven to desire to please you in all we say and in all we do. Thank you, Lord, for your privilege to meet together today. Amen.